everyone, and welcome to Then Again, the podcast at the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Libba Beecham, assistant director here, and today we have a very awesome guest, Kimberly Brock. Now, Kimberly Brock is the best-selling author of The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare and her award-winning debut, The River Witch. She's the founder of Tinderbox Writers Workshop and has served as a guest lecturer for many regional and national writing workshops, including at the Pat Conroy Literary Center. And today we're going to be discussing Kimberly's book, The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare, a historical fiction which follows the descendants of Eleanor Dare, a woman who was among the members of the lost colony of Roanoke. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and talk to you. Now, many people might know that there was this lost colony of Roanoke, very mysterious, and many people may not know about that. I, for one, did not know about this really until I came to the History Center and turned into a history nerd. Now, when did you discover this piece of history, and what did you learn along the way in your research? Could you give us sort of a an overview of what this mysterious lost colony of Roanoke is and how it inspired you? Sure. And I find it interesting. Where are you from, by the way? Oh, so I'm from just south of Atlanta, so Noonan, Georgia. Noonan, Georgia. And you did not learn about the lost colony of Roanoke, like fourth grade, maybe? You know, I, the thing is, is like, I I may have, but it really, I think it really depends on the history teacher that you have. That's super important. So what I do recall when I hear Roanoke, I do think, you know, early 1600s colonial America, but I don't know the details because this seems like a very fascinating, mysterious event that happened. So as a fourth grader, I bet I would have been hooked, but I guess I guess the day is going to be the day. <laughs> well, this is actually going to be fun to talk about because I remember learning about it in about the fourth grade, fourth, fifth grade, sometime in elementary school. And I think what we've just said is why I remember it, because I think I had a teacher who was a good storyteller. Mm. And I think that's the the history lessons that hook us mm-hmm. are good stories, you know, so that you imagine yourself as part of them, or you can imagine the experience. It's not just dry facts. And I was this really precocious little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was a place I wasn't supposed to be in, I was in it. <laughs> and I loved this story because it was a mystery. It was, it was a story without an ending. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, hmm, this is fishy somebody's not telling the truth about something because in 19, I'm sorry, 1587, Mm. one of the first groups of colonists to come from Britain to the new world. And they were the first group that had women and children. Oh, There were 115 people that were sent with this colony and they got here and they were not supposed to be left on Roanoke Island. They mm-hmm. actually were just kind of dropping by to pick up some guys that had been left from a previous colony. And when they stopped, the fellow that was in charge of the ship said, sorry, this is the end of the line. I'm not going any further. This is where you stay. Mm. They were supposed to go up to Chesapeake Bay. So plans had not gone right from the very beginning, and they just weren't prepared. There wasn't enough food, wasn't enough supplies. They voted that their governor should go back to London and see if he could get those things from the queen. And when he left, unfortunately, 
a war with Spain broke out. And oh, so all the timing. ships were needed and the queen wouldn't give him a ship to go back. So three years passed before he returned. And when he did, there was no sign of the colony. They had wow. disappeared. There were signs that were left, but they were confusing. He looked for them. Nobody was ever found, not even any bodies. Wow. So they disappeared into history. And along with them, his daughter, Eleanor Dare. Mm. And Eleanor's not necessarily a name that most people know. When you talk about this history of the Lost Colony, most people know the name Virginia Dare, even if it's just for liquor <laughs> or, for wine, <laughs> or a funny myth. Virginia Dare was supposedly the first British child born in the New World. She was Eleanor's daughter. Mm. So Eleanor disappeared and so did Virginia with the colony. That's where that history comes from. So wow. it's America's oldest mystery. Yeah, it really is. You know, it was surprising that, you know, I was thinking early 1600s, but this is even a little bit earlier in the late, late 1500s, uh, 1587, talking about 15. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that this was not the first settlement. This was the, the no. second. <laughs> and to, I just can't imagine the situations that they were in to survive right. three years, if they did survive that long, to say that. And um, I like to think, you know, these women and children showed up and they were like, look at the mess you men have made. Uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> because things were not friendly. Things were right. not great, you know, yeah. and it probably took some convincing for them to get on the boat to begin with. And there exactly. They were. <laughs> and goodness, such resilience. Now, yeah. when you're conducting your own research, what kind of resources do you have available for you? Not many. A lot of imagination. <laughs> I, I have readers, you know, that read and they want this to solve the lost colony, this novel. Mm -hmm. It's a fiction. And they'll say, oh, I wish there was more about the lost colony. And I say, yeah, me too. Right. I really would like to know. <laughs> but most of what we know about that colony is speculation. There's a lot of records from the efforts to colonize mm -hmm. and then later colonies but in term and John White, the governor, he kept extensive diaries. Mm. But as to what happened to them, sorry, they're gone. But I suppose uh, for you as a, an author of historical fiction, this, you know, we, we want to know, we want to imagine what happened. We want to speculate. And your role as this author is offering us this story. And so when you were thinking about what could have happened there. I'm sure there were a lot of different scenarios that went through your mind, especially as you're going through the research that is available to you. So as an author, I mean, you have all of these things that you can use in your story. And of course, you're thinking about your own imagination and what could be. What is that process like for you? I mean, what is it? I can't imagine having so much to, well, one, so little to take from, but also so much you could imagine. So right. how do you so balance that as an choices. author? How do you narrow it down? Yeah, yeah. I, it took a long, long time. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to say or mm. what could be new to say. And I'll just start here. There are two mysteries in this novel. So there's, there's the mystery of the fate of the lost colony, but what drew me to the story was discovering 
the mystery of the Dare Stones mm. in 1937. So there are two mysteries here. And I was looking at the two mysteries and realizing what I really wanted to do was to tell a female story. I wanted to tell the story of Eleanor, not necessarily the story of the colony. Mm-hmm. And I knew when the colony had disappeared. And then I knew when the first dare stone was discovered. And, and we maybe can we can take a, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, like, we haven't even uh, brought up the dare stone. Now, a lot of people in Gainesville, uh, may already be aware of this mysterious dare stone that is actually in the archives at Brunel University. Tell us about this dare stone. What is the story behind it? So in 1937, this kind of fishy character is visiting from California with his wife, and he's on a little road in North Carolina. He stops to look for hickory nuts, gets out of the car, and stumbles across this big stone that looks to him to have some kind of an engraving on it. He can't really read it. It's very cramped, but it's 1937. So it's, you know, right at the end of the depression, everybody's looking for a way to make a buck. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, well, maybe this is going to be worth something. So he tosses it in his trunk and they go on their way and they make their way down on their road trip into Atlanta. And he waltzes into Emory College and plunks this thing down for the history professor to look at. (laughs) And what ensues is this spectacle because they sort of lose their minds. They think (laughs) it's Elizabethan English. It translates to be a message with initials EWD. And they believe it's from Eleanor White there, daughter of the Mm -hmm. colony in Roanoke. It says that there's been a massacre, that Mm. almost everyone in the colony has been wiped out. It says that her husband, Ananias, and her daughter, Virginia, have died. And she and a few other survivors, basically it says, Dad, we're going this away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come find wow. us. It also says there's a second stone hmm. that has been inscribed with the names of the dead. And so sort of became this huge spectacle. The nation was crazy for it. It was all in the news and all of the people at Emory looked at it and they didn't want to necessarily invest in the stone. They couldn't decide if it was authentic or not. Mm -hmm. But the history professor, his dad was the president of Grinnell College. And so he took this stone, they bought it and took it to Grinnell and they sort of he was obsessed with it and decided Mm -hmm. he wanted to find that second stone because he knew if he could find the second one, it would prove it. Mm -hmm. And that was huge. So they go looking for the second stone and they never found it. Unfortunately, he made the decision at that point to say, so if any of you folks have ever seen one of these stones before and you bring it to us, We'll pay you. Oh, no. That doesn't sound like a good (laughs) idea. Everybody. All right. So this second fishy character comes out of the woodwork. And over the next few years, over 40 of these stones are found. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so now the college has this thing on their hands. And he releases an article about what he's done. And everybody's excited and proud. But the Saturday Evening Post sends a reporter who investigates and turns up all kinds of problems. Mm. And so the stones as a whole are debunked. Right. However, the first stone, they've never been able to authenticate it or not. So mm-hmm. nobody knows whether that first stone 
is what people call real or authentic. Right, because I can imagine that, of course, this is a stone that is right. not going to be easy to, you know, we don't have carbon dating for the no, kind of for inscription. Kind of testing, you know, and there's mm-hmm. lots of programs on it. But I, I looked at that and I thought, I just stumbled across, back to your question about research, I was just kind of starting out as a writer and I was dabbling on the internet. It was kind of new. This is 20 something years ago. And I ran across an article on the Darestone. And it connected my home state of Georgia to the Lost Colony mystery. And I was so excited. And I mm. I was also upset. Why don't I know anything about this? I've right. never heard anything about it. And my dad is a big historian. He loves history. And we that's all we ever did on vacations. And so that I had never heard of it just sort of shocked me. And it made me really curious. Absolutely. We were, yeah, we were living in North Carolina at the time. And we moved back to Georgia. And so I got in my car and I had called ahead and I went up and I saw the stone there at, at Bernal. Wow. And I walk in and it's this tiny little archive library and this one little library. And I think, you know, there's no telling who actually ever shows up to see this thing. And <laughs> I don't want to scare her or be weird. And so I was trying to be nice about it and just be quiet. And I was really excited. I just mm-hmm. wanted to see it. I didn't know what I would think about it. And I took a look at it and I started to cry Oh wow! <laughs> and I felt terrible. And she looked at me like, sweetie. And I said, it's okay. I'm okay. And I was embarrassed and I left and I was about halfway home trying to figure out why I was so emotional about it. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was angry mm. because her story, Eleanor's story was connected to that stone, whether it was real or not. And I didn't right. care anymore mm-hmm. if it was authentic. All I could think about was that she would have been 19 when they made the crossing and hugely pregnant. I can't imagine that at 19, standing there with a new baby, I would have looked around and thought, wow, I'm really going to make it. I would have just wanted there to be something left. I would have wanted somebody to remember me. Absolutely. And centuries later, I was driving home in North Georgia remembering her. Wow. So that's the story I wanted to tell. That, that is such a, a beautiful connection to history. And it really does, like you said, it, it in a sense, it does not matter if this particular stone is authentic or not. The fact that it serves as a catalyst for this woman's story, that her name is on it, her initials right. are at least on it, that there is at least some reminder of that struggle. And like you said, I... I can absolutely imagine being really moved by seeing this stone, again, authentic or not, just knowing that it serves as a reminder that this woman existed, this young woman existed, and she was not the only woman there. And of course, the men are going to be struggling too, but it's going to be particularly challenging for a young mother trying to survive in the literal wilderness of a completely new world. Exactly. And I thought about that. That really is what the research for this novel was about, much less about the lost colony and more about women's history and how it's lost and where you have to find it in the cracks. You know, I I didn't go and sit down in a research library and just open up the annals of history and find how women moved through this country. I had to look for them in their art, 
in their uh, journals, thus the commonplace book that's fictionalized in this novel, their recipes, and you know, how you keep your garden alive, how you keep your baby alive, how you maybe get rid of your husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So this is all context for yeah. what this, what their experience would have been like. And Because like you said before, there are not a lot of specific resources on the colony of Roanoke or the Dare Stones, yeah. but what we, what you as an author can glean from the vast amount of knowledge that is available about this time period, about this particular culture, what the material culture is going to be like. So really humanizing a character by knowing what foods would they have eaten? What kind of cloth would they have used for their textiles and clothing? What kind of customs did they have? Religion did they have? All of these things are clearly going to build a very human character that I'm sure Anyone and surprising can ways with. that our country colonized, you know, I, I made a very thoughtful decision to deviate from the story that's dictated on those 40 something stones for what mm-hmm. happens to Eleanor, because I looked at them and I thought that sounds just like something a man would make up. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a woman's story. So what if a woman was making this story up? And who would she be? Who would that stone have mattered to? Yes, yes. And I thought, you know, if the stone was found in 1937 and then debunked in 1942, I think the person it would matter to would be her family. Mm -hmm. If it was a family story that had been passed down, if the women in your family have said, this is who we come from. And I, you know, I grew up in the South. That's what we do. Who are Mm -hmm. your people? What if suddenly you're told, well, that's a bunch of malarkey. Mm. You know, does it matter if it's true? If it's Mm. your family story, family stories aren't always true. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at descendants of Eleanor and how women, I would say, moved through early American history, pre-revolutionary history, all the way down to 1942. But really, I was looking at how they were moved. Because women didn't have a lot of choices. And the way that they moved through history, through port cities, and this family in particular winds up in Savannah, I found it intriguing because it was unexpected in a lot of ways. And you might not be who you think you are. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Is what it comes down to. So I really enjoyed that part. And I I had a good time. I did not anticipate writing a novel set at the end of World War II because I feel like it's kind of heavily covered right now in historical fiction. Mm. But this book is unique, I think, in that it's a home front story. It's set there because of when the Dare Stones were debunked. And being on the coast of Georgia in Savannah at the time, at the end of the war, it was interesting to see what women were doing. And I felt like the mother and daughter in this story were kind of in the same, I don't know, edge of the world kind of experience. What comes next Mm -hmm. as Eleanor and her daughter might have been. Right. It sounds like, I mean, it's definitely a direct connection when it comes to a time of survival. Of course, there's going to be a totally different context to how Eleanor Dare and this character during World War II are going to survive, but they are women thinking about their families. They are women that have to go through specific challenges because they are women. And there is also, of course, this connection between the characters and their shared histories. And 
I was also wanting to go back to what you were saying about having a family story or what a story can do, especially when it comes to historical fiction. It seems like one of the goals of historical fiction is to represent a truth, a universal truth that can be gleaned from history and stories themselves. So whether the story is factually true, how is it served to tell a story about a universal truth, for instance, whether that is resilience of women or something completely different? But as a historical fiction writer, could you talk to me about what a reader can gain from reading historical fiction? If someone has not delved into historical fiction before, why is historical fiction something that can offer a unique experience for readers? I think it it's one of the reasons that I enjoyed setting the book in Savannah. I think it's about walking through a world and realizing that you weren't the first person here, that somebody else has come before you, mm. somebody else is what's beneath your feet, that you're not necessarily who you think you are mm-hmm. and neither are your neighbors. Mm-hmm. I, when I wrote this book, I thought a lot about the characters on this farm. They've lost their father in World War II, and now they have Italian POWs that are working on their farm. He died Mm. in Italy, and they end up setting a table for these men and having a dinner. You know, who do you, who do you sit with at your table? Mm -hmm. How do you set that table? Mm -hmm. I thought a lot about the stone that it served, you know, it's a message, but it's also a gravestone. It's where she lost everything and everybody Mm. she'd ever known and loved. And she put the stone there, but then she did the more incredible thing. She walked away from it. Right. And those kinds of truths, and I think those are the most important things that historical fiction brings to a reader. It makes you realize that we're all just experiencing the same life challenges mm-hmm. and that there's wonder. There's wonder in the world every, for every generation that the mystery maybe is the best part of all the things mm-hmm. that we don't know. Right. And it, and it seems like, you know, with something that it seems like historical fiction can interest people in history also in a different way, because, you know, there are, of course, still folks out there that haven't had a oh, perhaps a, a proper introduction to how fascinating history can be. It might be stuffy names and numbers to their right. mind, but once they really see that this is a shared story, I mean, yeah. whether no matter what your background is, this is a human story and part of our collective human story. Right. And especially for, I mean, I can imagine that women readers in particular would be very drawn to this, but it also seems like anyone can really think about themselves in that situation and appreciate the fact that they have challenges in their lives that are completely different. And yet at the core of it, we are still trying to survive, trying to you know do right by our families, trying to grow and learn, trying to get to the next day. 
And of course, there's the joys in life that even in the lost colony of Roanoke, in these extremely dire situations, I'm sure that Eleanor and those other mothers with their children were still telling them stories, singing the lullabies, comforting them, maybe even sharing stories that bring joy and laughter in, in a really dark time. And so with your stories protagonist Alice she's living in this very dire time as well on the home front of Georgia and World War II and this seems like I I wonder with World War II in particular and Alice could you describe Alice's specific experience and how what challenges she is encountering during this time? So Alice starts out Alice and her daughter Penn who's 13 they start out near Helen Georgia And her dad has run a little service station on the side of the highway there. And Helen's not Helen yet at that point. Helen is just a sort of a ghost town. It used to be a logging town and there's not many people on the highway anymore. And so she's struggling to make ends meet. She's a a young widow. Her husband has died in Italy, basically unaccounted for. And she has a 13 year old. Mm -hmm. And when her dad dies, she and learns that she still owns this family property that's been passed down for generations through her maternal family. Mm-hmm. They left it years ago and she's got to go back with her daughter. She wants to sell this place. And unfortunately her daughter is immediately obsessed with it because it's mm. all this family history that she never knew. So really Alice is the same as every mother. You have your family stories that you tell. You have your family stories that you don't tell. Mm-hmm. And then you have a daughter who's 13 who looks at you and says, who are you and who mm-hmm. am I? So when they go back to this house in Savannah, it's a sort of this big haunted house. It's uh, I think about the South that way too, like a big haunted house. There's all the stories right. we tell and all the stories we don't. So they're grappling with that. And while they're there, her daughter the world kind of opens up to her. She she sees the shipyards in Savannah where women are building the Liberty ships. She meets a woman who is a, now a grown girl who is part of a program that's through the Girl Scouts who's learning to fly airplanes. Even though Wonderful. he's not going to be able to fly one, they don't right? allow them to fly, but she will know how. Mm-hmm. So she's preparing for a future. And Penn, who is, like I said, 13 years old, She's also kind of had her eye on Bernal because Bernal wasn't too far from them when they right. were in Helen. And she knows about the Dare Stones because they've been in the news, but she does not know it's a family connection for mm-hmm. her until they go back to the house in Savannah. Wow. And the reason she's been looking at Bernal is because it, at the time, Bernal had a girls' school that was a boarding school for high school girls. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to attend there. So, you know, there's all these connections for this family within, I hope, what feels like reality of 1945. Okay. And I think that it's important. It, it was really important for me to show just those little obscure pieces of mm-hmm. what was going on right there at the end of World War II. You know, people in Georgia, we weren't feeling it the same way. You're far mm-hmm. removed from Europe, but your husband, your brother, your your family's gone. Mm-hmm. The men were gone. Right. So 
it left women in sort of this different position and it also was somewhat empowering for them, I think. Yes. But they don't know what's going to happen next. You know, yes. one step forward, two steps back. Mm. What's coming for this 13-year-old daughter of mine? Exactly. And, you know, the I love thinking about how as a modern reader, especially as a modern female reader, I'm making that own connection between my life and then back up a generation or so to the World War II experience of women. And then we're going way back in time to yeah. make those connections. So not only are the characters making those connections that are deeply felt, the reader is also given this opportunity to reflect on the connections between us and the past. And I, that's something I, I really love about what historical fiction can offer. And um, I'm sure that by the end of, you know, your book that you would want readers to to take away something. And I, I wonder if you could speak to what it is that you hope that they take away by the end of your novel. I think I want them to to think about their own family stories. I think that's important. I don't think it's necessarily important that you have all the facts, but I do think there's something to be said for for knowing that you're part of chain of events mm. that you don't just hatch out of an egg. <laughs> I also think it's important to be okay with the things that you don't know. I think our mothers tell us the pieces of the story that we need when we need them. Mm -hmm. They don't always tell us the truth. They sometimes embellish <laughs> or they leave things out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we run out of time. Mm -hmm. And you, I think, find wisdom in how you live with that and what you make of that, of the missing pieces. I love that. I think that's such a wonderful a wonderful thing to reflect on with your novel is those those missing pieces and how historical fiction can help us, like we talked about before, speculate and imagine and connect to our shared history. Now, I'm, I'm very curious to know more about you as an author and just what got you inspired to write. Now, was historical fiction something newer to you or can you oh, tell us? Oh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so you God. were really inspired by, by this particular story and that yeah. brought you into <laughs> historical fiction. That's amazing. So I wrote my first novel, which is a Southern literary novel and it's very character driven. And there's a little bit of history in it. It's funny because I think that that thing, you know, that my dad did, uh, we had this family wall of photographs and our family, my mom, my dad, my siblings and I, our photo in the center. And then on one side, there were photos of my dad's family going back to Tintypes. Mm, and then wow. on the other side, same with my mom's family. And we could stand there. I grew up in a house. It was built in 1912. So mm -hmm. it's this old house. Everything was old. Everything mm -hmm. was a story. Everything was history. Yeah. We had people show up. And this guy showed up one time, little old man, and came in and told us he was born in the front room. You know. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> so I grew up in a house that was built out of stories to me. Mm. And then this wall with this, all these faces looking at us. And my dad would stand there and tell us the stories about who they were. And then there were all these questions because yeah. there was so much we didn't know about who they were. And I would stand there and look at them. And I had friends that would come and look at them and say, wow, we don't have this in our house. And so it always felt like something special to me that it was there. And I think when I started to write, that's what happened because I write mm -hmm. a very character driven story. And so 
I, from my own experience and whatever that is in your imagination that you draw from that we call voice, I think Mm -hmm. is, it comes from that. So when I'm starting to write these characters, I need to know. That's my question. Well, where did you come from? Who are your people? (laughs) Yeah. Those questions lead me into whatever historical context these families and these people spring from because they don't just start the day that I put them on the page. They come from something. Absolutely. And then I'm interested, you know, in what's going on around them. So I'm, I don't know that I set out to write historical fiction, but it seems to be the lens that I look through. I don't necessarily write a traditional historical fiction novel because you know, the lost book of Eleanor Dare is Eleanor's tale is a fable in this book. Mm-hmm. You're not going to pick it up and read it like you would read a World War II novel set in Europe where you have the contemporary story and it bounces mm-hmm. back and forth between, you know, the spy in Europe and mm-hmm. and here's the, the woman that works the newspaper in the States in 2023. Mm-hmm. So it's a little different. It's still kind of literary, I guess, what I write. Yeah, and I and I love that it's it seems like you've made a connection that the the seed was planted long ago for you to mm-hmm. have an interest in this and these types of stories, but here is one particular story that you were really drawn to and moved by because of what it represented, that that story of Eleanor Dare. So I I highly encourage folks to read your novel and I'd love for you to share how we can find your novel and where we can find more information about your other projects. So it's a HarperCollins title. So it's available anywhere you can buy a book. It's out in hardback. It's out in paperback. It's out in audiobook. So you can find it any way they make it, any format you want. Um, Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I I generally will sign stock if I visit a bookstore and Foxtail Bookshop in Woodstock, Georgia always has signed copies on hand because they're near me. And then I will also be up at Brunel March 22nd to speak to the students. And I believe it's open to the public as well. I'm sure they'll have flyers and whatnot about that. Oh, you can wonderful. find out other places I will be or have been on my website. It's KimberlyBroughtBooks.com. And I'm on all of the social media that they make me do. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Kimberly, this has been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Book clubs. I love book clubs. So if you have a book club and you would like for me to come speak and you're somewhere local to me, I'm just north of Atlanta. Or I can do virtual stuff. And I have this great book club kit. And this lady did this fantastic pairing, like with wines and all these recipes. And it's just beautiful. That link is on my website. And I also just did a feature on the History Channel. Ooh. And that was crazy fun. And they, yeah. I'm sure, really enjoyed this accent. Um, oh, yeah. It aired a, like a week ago, I think, oh, on wow. History Channel. So. It's on History's Greatest Mysteries, and it's streaming, so you can find it online. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing all that information. And folks, links will be in our podcast description. And again, I highly encourage y'all to check out The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare by Kimberly Brock. Kimberly, again, thank you so much for sharing your story and your talents with us today. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thank you. I love the History Center up there. It, It was amazing. I toured it just recently, and I'm so impressed. I appreciate you guys inviting me. 
Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.